0: My wife, Kelly, had, bar none, the coolest birthday parties growing up of anybody I've ever heard of. Her father was a retired Air Force pilot, and after he retired from the Air Force and they moved to Tampa, Florida, he started working for a company called Reflectone that made flight simulators. And so for Kelly's birthday, she would get to invite a handful of friends, and they would come over and get to fly planes. How awesome is that? This was an era where Pac-Man was kind of the greatest and best thing that you could hope for. Now you're going to get to fly this giant flight simulator and sit in the cockpit so you can imagine how much joy and fun it was for these kids to get to experience that. Well, flight simulators are not just for fun. They're also an important learning tool. How many of you have been grateful to God for flight simulators, that pilots don't get to work out like their kinks and, you know, figure out how to run the apparatus with you in the back and, you know, just kind of doing it on the go? But flight simulators are a technology that's been around for not very long, but according to neurologists, flight simulators of our minds have been around for a long, long time that stories are the ancient forms of flight simulators. That neurologists tell us that if you were actually to look at what's going on, like with a functional MRI scan, what's going on in your brain while someone's telling a story, you're watching a story, hearing a story, that the same parts of your brain light up when you're entering into a story as the same as if you were experiencing that for yourself. And so stories are verbal acts of hospitality where you and I get invited into someone else's experience and we get to learn from it. There's a good reason that Jesus taught primarily in stories. There's a reason that the vast majority of the Bible is a story. And today we're going to enter into one of the great stories of the Old Testament. In fact, it's a story that Jesus said to some of the religious leaders of his day and age that this was the only sign, the only story that you needed as background in order to understand who he was and what he came to do. We're going to look at the story of Jonah. And Jonah's story is really important because it's able to communicate things to us in the flight simulator that is this story that just wouldn't get communicated if we were just kind of describing it. In other words, um, I could stand up here as your pastor and I could define for you this is what sin is and this is what grace is. But no amount of great, precise, philosophical or theological definition of those two two terms is going to do any justice compared to entering into the Jonah story that, as Tim Keller says, teaches us that sin is running away from God and that grace is the fact that God runs after us. A picture really is worth a thousand words, and so we are calling this series Overboard because we're about to discover how God goes way overboard and the extravagant and pursuing nature of His love. Now, in order to kick this series off, we're going to have to do today some background work for you to understand some of the context, some of the early verses of what's going on, and we're going to begin with a little game. I want to do a little bit of word association with you, and in doing that, I'm going to have you want to engage with this. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to turn to somebody next to you, and as soon as I say that word, I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Don't filter it, just say it. So the word I want you to, to respond to is the word Jonah. Turn to somebody else and tell them what's the first thing that comes to your mind. All right, raise your hand. How many for you, whale, was what you said? Okay, so the vast majority of you, immediate association. Now, And there is kind of an animal-esque theme to the book of the Bible that is Jonah. I mean, we're going to see, yeah, the large fish in chapter 2. We're going to see the cattle in chapter 3. We're going to see the worm in chapter 4. But if you were to actually engage in the very same activity that I did, if you got a group of ancient Hebrews together and you say, we're going to do word association, I'm going to say the word Jonah, and you say the first thing that comes to your mind, they would not have said whale. They would have said this thing. They would have said dove, because Jonah in Hebrew means dove, and they would have all known that. So they would have not associated Jonah with the whale as much of his namesake. Unless you think I'm making too big of a deal out of this, let me tell you this. In the story of Jonah that we have it from the Bible, there is only one name in the entire book. It's Jonah's name. Yes, we're going to see a king. Yes, we're going to meet Ninevites. Yes, there's going to be a captain. Yes, there's going to be sailors. None of those other individuals are ever named in this story, only Jonah. So the whole book is drip, drip, drip. The dove, the dove, the dove, the dove. And think of the incredible rich imagery that comes to us from the Bible in association with a dove. Um, that the Spirit of God hovers over the waters of creation and chaos like a dove, that we find out that um, that Jesus at his baptism, that the Spirit's open, the heaven's open, and his Spirit descends like a dove in that moment, that Jesus says we are to be wise as serpents, as gentle as doves, that doves were the minimum sacrifice that you could offer in coming to the temple And of course, the most famous dove story of all, this particular dove story, the story of Noah's Ark. This is a story of redemption and recreation, and the fact that of all the animals, Noah takes a dove, and that God sends that dove out on a mission, and we find out that the dove, because of this story, becomes the symbol of peace and of newness of life for God's own people. And so God is about to send Jonah, the dove, out on another mission, and we're about to see how he responds. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in the first verse, just these few verses to begin with. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. May God not only bless the hearing and the receiving, but also the doing and the putting into practice of his holy word. And so Jonah the dove is sent out by God But instead of going the right direction, Jonah goes the wrong direction. Let's put up a map and do a little bit of geography here. You see Joppa up here on this screen, and you saw Nineveh would be kind of north and east from where he was there. Can you see where Tarshish is? This is at the end of the opposite direction. Of where he wants to go. Jonah wants absolutely nothing to do with what God has called him to do, and he's gonna go about as far as any ancient person could even conceive of going. This was the end of the earth as far as he was concerned. And so I love how John Ortberg captures the sentiment of Jonah with kind of the, the penmanship of Dr. Seuss when he says this I would not go there in a boat, I would not go there in a float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea. So stop this talk and let me be. We can probably all relate to Jonah in this sense in that we don't, sometimes we don't want to do what God calls us to do. And so we turn around and we hightail it and we go in exactly the opposite direction from where God is sending us. But Jonah's not only directionally challenged, there's something else that's shocking that we miss here at the beginning of this passage. And that is is that if you think of what kind of figure Jonah is in Israel's history and in the Old Testament, he's known as a prophet. Now, prophets were known for being incredibly prolific with Uh, their words, with what they said. In fact, we don't really know, for most of the prophets, we don't know a whole lot of what what they did. What we do know is what they said. And many of them, they argued with God, they begged God not for the assignment, they would have excuses for why they shouldn't do what they were supposed to do, but they were always talking back. Jonah's not like that at all. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and did you notice how Jonah responds? Do you see the kind of what he says in this part of the story? Nada, zilch, not a single uttered word. Jonah is known as the silent preacher. And some of you are thinking, that's the best preacher that money can buy. I mean, it's, one author says that what Jonah does here in terms of responding in silence is so, so shocking. I mean, think about this. This is the word of the Lord that we're talking about. This is the very word of God that spun the planets at the beginning of creation. This is the word of the Lord that's promised that will not return empty. And God said, and it was so. That's what the, the word of the Lord does and yet what Jonah does is so shocking, it'd be akin to having, you know, two of you come forward, there's a bride and the groom standing here, and I turned to the groom in the middle of the wedding service, and I said, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, and for you to remain silent for a long period of time, and then to turn and to walk out that door? That's as shocking as Jonah's silence is. Here in this story. I thought that maybe we could begin this series with a little bit of performance art that I would just walk in, read the Scripture, close the Scripture, and exit out the door. But unlike Jonah, I get paid by the Word, and so I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And so Jonah is this silent preacher who goes in the opposite direction. And before we kind of look down on Jonah and say, you know, why wouldn't he do this? Let's be clear that Jonah has been given a tough assignment. This is an archaeological picture of where Jonah was called to go. This is the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh, it is the capital of Assyria in that day and age. And what you need to realize is that God calling a Jew to go to Nineveh would be like God calling a Jew in the 1930s to go to Berlin. It's a shocking call. It'd be like God calling a group of American Christians to go to Tehran and Iran and to say, that's where I want you to go. No wonder Jonah doesn't want anything to do with this. To put a little extra texture on this, the prophet Nahum in the Old Testament refers to the city of Nineveh by its nickname. What we've learned with scholars is that this is how people, they would often say Nineveh, and then they would use this phrase. It was called the city of blood. It was known for its death marches. It was known for infanticide. It was known for genocide. It was the city of blood. In the same way that you and I might refer to, like, Las Vegas as Sin City, or we might refer to as New York as the Big Apple, Nineveh, its nickname was, you know, kind of this remarkable, awful situation. You can imagine they didn't get a lot of spring break tourists in Nineveh. In fact, in other parts of the Bible, we discover that they talk about how when Nineveh falls, the people will stand and clap their hands at the calamity that takes them down. And so here you have the city of blood as his call. You can understand why he doesn't want to go. And then there's one other kind of, you know, detail here that just tends to whoo right over our head at the beginning. Did you notice in verse 3 this little innocuous phrase that it said that Jonah went down to Joppa kind of found the boat that he was looking for, and then after paying the fare. No big deal to us, right? We live in an affluent part of the world. We, uh, money is just all around us in society. We're used to kind of a currency. You need to understand, this is a story that is taking place 700 years before Christ. Money was historically and contextually extraordinarily rare. So Jonah walking up and paying the fare would have been shocking to the original hearers of this story. It would almost be like if I kind of pulled out the Bible and translated it today and I'd say, and Jonah uh, walked up to the port and he pulled out his American Express Black Centurion card and he paid for a first-class ticket to Tarshish, which was the city of innovation in its day. It'd be like him buying a first-class ticket on a plane to go to Um, the Silicon Valley of his day. And so we can see that he goes in the wrong direction and that he's silent and that this is a tough assignment. What we're also discovering is that Jonah is a man of great means. He's loaded. And what's important about that is that you're never tempted by anything that you cannot do. In other words, you're only tempted by the things that you can do. And so let's, before we kind of say, Jonah, this story doesn't really apply to me, just with these few short verses, let's ask a couple of questions personally, honestly. First question is this, when have I been silent when I knew that God wanted me to speak up? Or secondly, when have I turned from a tough assignment by avoiding conflict? Or thirdly, what have I used what I have to insulate me from God's will? Or fourthly, what if I cared more for my own skin than for the redemption of others? Twice in three short verses, we find out that God calls Jonah and he flees and he runs away from the word of the Lord. when one of our daughters was about four or five years old, she was in this regular habit of that when things didn't go her way, when we did something uh, and kind of put a boundary and said, you can't do that or you can't have that, um, one of the things that she would do is that she would run away. And the way that she would do this as a little four or five-year-old is she would go to her door the Explorer, kind of little piece of luggage, and she'd throw in a few essentials like, you know, some stuffed animals, maybe a blanket, maybe some PJs. She would zip it up, and she would walk to the front door, and she's like, I'm running away! And she would slam the door behind her, and she would walk out. And it really wasn't, you know, we, we were kind of, you know, like trying to be serious but laughing on the inside as parents because she never really made it past the front stoop. She never really made it that far, which is why it was a big surprise on this one night. We don't even remember why she got all that upset, but something really triggered her, and she packed her little Dora bag, and she not only walked out that front door, she turned left, she went down the end of the block, and she was headed down two more blocks towards the high school, and this is perfectly dark outside, and we're kind of watching this, and I'm kind of following along. I'm like, she's really running away this time. Like, she actually means it. So fortunately, I'm a lot taller than a five-year-old, and so I use my long strides to catch up with her, and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm running away. I'm like, I can kind of see that. Where are you going? And she's like, I'm going to Nana's house. Well, we were living in Southern California at the time, and Nana lives in Tampa, Florida. (laughs) Kind of a long walk. And I'm like, well, that's going to take you a while. Florida's a long way away. And I said, have you thought about where you're going to sleep tonight? She kind of thought for a moment. She said, Mariner's Park, because it was one of her favorite playgrounds in the area. I'm like, well, where are you going to sleep in Mariner's Park? She's like, on the merry-go-round. And I'm like, that's going to be kind of a problem, because it's kind of illegal to sleep outside in a park. And and she looked at me, and she said, how come you've never told me this before? (laughs) I'm like, well, it's kind of never come up before. And if, you know, if you're going to get arrested, I want to be there to see it. I'm going to take some pictures. (laughs) And um, so she literally is like, well, I guess we better go back home. I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's go back home. And so we start walking back home. Well, this is now like she had run away enough and had escalated to a point where we felt like we needed to do something about it. And, you know, I was thinking about punishment and rules and that kind of thing, and my wife's like, I got it, because she's the smarter parent of the two of us. And so she gets that old classic book. Raise your hand if you have read the book Runaway Bunny. Old classic book, 1942, never been out of print. And so every night for a a certain season, Kelly would curl up in a chair her daughter in her lap, and she would read this story. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away, so he said to his mother, I'm running away. If you run at- away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you become a fish in a trout stream, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. If you become a rock on a mountain high above me, I will be a mountain climber, and I will climb to where you are. If you become a crocus in a hidden garden, I will be a gardener and I will find you. If you become a bird and fly away from me, I will be a tree that you come home to. If you become a sailboat and sail away from me, I will become the wind and blow you to where I want you to go. If you go flying on a flying trapeze, I will be a tightrope walker and I will walk across the air to you. If you become a little boy and run into a house, I will become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. Shucks, said the little bunny, I might as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. And so he did. After a while, story after story after story of a runaway bunny begins to seep into our daughter's state of thinking and being. And she stopped running away because she knew that she was in the embrace of the love of her family and her parents. But running away is not just for kids, is it? You and I might be a little more sophisticated about it. It might not be near as dramatic, and our luggage might be a lot better than that little Dora backpack. But we still run away, don't we? From God? From one another? There's a part of this early portions of the text that I want to share with you what it says in the original Hebrew. It says twice that Jonah ran away or fled. And if you've got your own Bible or if you're taking notes today, I want you to Notice that in those two times that it says this, it literally says that Jonah ran away or fled the face of the Lord. He's not just running away from God. He's running away from God's face. As a husband, I can always tell when I've hurt my wife. They say that the eyes are the window of a soul. I can always tell that when I've said something or neglected to do something or did something that really wounded her, hurt her feelings, I can always see it. And in those moments in marriage, I want to run away and hide. Sometimes hide behind the screen of a gadget. Sometimes I hide behind a book. Sometimes I hide just with the angle of how I'm standing or lying down. Sometimes I hide just by being in a nearby room instead of being there. Because when we hide It hurts to look at the face, does it not? And in those moments when our relationship has a wound, when one of us has the courage to get close and vulnerable, usually one of us will utter the words of endearment, of tenderness, Every once in a while, you know, in a relationship, you have a pet name for someone. You call someone. My wife calls me Tarzan. That's her pet name for me. No, that's not what she calls me. It's what I want her to call me. I told her either Tarzan or Superman, you can choose. No, she calls me my love. And I often call her precious. And in those moments, it's almost like those little words start to break the ice. The reason I tell you this is that I don't want you to miss that in the Hebrew people, and even in certain cultures today, The word for dove is actually one of the primary terms of endearment for a loved one. And so what's going on behind the scenes that maybe you've never heard of in this story is that the one name that is mentioned in this story, Jonah, 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 the dove, the dove, the dove, that even though he's being quiet, Even though he's going in the opposite direction from where God wants him to go, even though it's a tough assignment, even though he's trying to hide from what God's doing behind his means and he's hiding from the very face of God, he's running as far as he can the opposite way. He never for once stops being the beloved, the dove of God. And the relationship, although it be severed, and even though the assignment is the city of blood, we know that in Christ the price will be paid for them to be restored. Here's the deal. No matter how wealthy Jonah is, he doesn't have enough money to pay the price to restore this relationship. He can't pay that fare. Only God can pay the fare. You who were once far off, the New Testament says, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's paid the fare for you. And no matter how far you've run away, He wants to make you his little bunny, his little dove, and to bring you home. Let's pray together. Our loving God and Father, as you now welcome us here to this table, that we might experience the redemption and the call and what it means to be that agent of peace and reconciliation in the world that the dove was always meant to be. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will rest upon this act of communion that as we gather around this table, you'd be welcoming us, welcoming us back into your very presence, back to your face, the face of Jesus. And so, God, for anybody here who's hiding and running from you, will you now run to them, pursue them, chase them, with the extravagant nature of your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.